Hi, everyone, and welcome to our first ESICM podcast for 2021. My name is Rahul Costapinto. I'm an intensivist at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne, Australia, and an ESICM Next Committee member. Joining me today is Professor Andrew Udy, a Senior Intensive Care Specialist at the Alfred Hospital, also here in Melbourne. He completed his intensive care training in New Zealand, the United Kingdom and Australia, and is involved in critical care research internationally as the Secretary of the Australian and New Zealand Intensive Care Society Clinical Trials Group and Co-Deputy Director of the ANZICS Research Centre at Monash University. He is the Principal Investigator of a current ANZICS CTG endorsed study, the Brain Oxygen Neuromonitoring in Australia and New Zealand Assessment, or BONANZA trial, and he's also a keen educator and is chair of the Neurocritical Care Special Interest Group of the College of Intensive Care Medicine here in Australia. Andrew, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks, Raul. Thank you very much for the invitation, and it's a pleasure to join you. Andrew, you're well-placed um, to speak on today's topic, which is severe traumatic brain injury. Severe TBI is a leading cause of morbidity and mortality in our trauma-intensive care population and is skewed towards younger patients with devastating social and economic costs thereafter. Currently, up to 50% of patients with severe TBI have unfavourable outcomes, ranging from severe disability to death at six months post-injury. Now, before we delve into the management specifics, I suppose we should start with a more straightforward question. Andrew, how do you define severe traumatic brain injury? Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, quite an interesting question. And you would think that uh, given the amount of work that's been done in this area uh, over a number of decades now, that we'd have a fairly consistent definition of severe TBI. Uh, but in fact, actually, um, it's still open to some degree of interpretation. Uh, and it very much depends upon your clinical perspective and, and where the patient is, uh, I suppose, within their journey. I think for acute care for physicians, uh, those people working in the emergency department or in the intensive care unit, uh, you know, our, our, the most commonly employed definition is going to be related to the patient's Glasgow coma score um, post-resuscitation. Uh, and you know, a severe traumatic brain injury will be defined as somebody that has a persistent GCS that is less than or equal to eight or less than nine um, uh, and is not post-resuscitation and is not due to other confounders such as um, drug use. And obviously there also needs to be a history of you know, mechanical force, whether that be a fall, motor vehicle accident uh, or otherwise, but force being applied uh, to the brain. And, uh, and, and some people would also include some degree of abnormality on neuroimaging um, and that can, uh, whereas, but you know, other people uh, would suggest that that's not required and you can have a relatively normal looking CT scan uh, and certainly, um, you know, we would have all encountered patients that have actually been, you know, significantly injured, but have initially have a relatively preserved uh, sort of CT of the brain. Other, you know, other sort of methodologies that are employed include sort of duration of post-traumatic amnesia more than seven days or a loss of, you know, loss of consciousness of greater than 24 hours. Um, but those sort of definitions don't, I don't think are generally that helpful in the acute phase. And obviously loss of consciousness is going to be confounded by the use of sedatives and other agents. So I think to summarize there, the most, the most useful definition for me is a, a post-resuscitation GCS of less than or equal to eight uh, plus or minus abnormal imaging. Okay, so what are your principles of management, I guess, broadly speaking, of a patient with a severe traumatic brain injury in the first 48 hours of their ICU stay? 
Yeah, I, I think that this generally within that first sort of acute phase uh, within the emergency department, within the ICU, within that first 48 hours, your focus is going to be on uh, ensuring that the patient has been adequately resuscitated, uh, that there's been adequate attention to any other uh, trauma. We know that, that, that obviously patients with severe TBI tend to present with multi-trauma. They may have thoracic injuries, abdominal injury. Uh, they may also have um, other long bone fractures. Uh, and, and of course, what we're trying to do from the very beginning uh, of the patient's uh, stay within the intensive care unit uh, is to try and prevent secondary brain injury. So we want to ensure adequate oxygenation, adequate ventilation, adequate perfusion uh, to the injured brain. And that's going to involve then uh, sort of close inspection uh, and management of the patient's airway, breathing, circulation, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, you want to get have close attention to any uh, any other potential sources of blood loss, making sure that they're being controlled, uh, any other uh, sort of ancillary uh, interventions that are required, whether that be angiography uh, and, uh, uh, you know, control of bleeding that way, any other surgical procedures, any other stabilization uh, that's required of bony fractures like pelvic injuries or long bone fractures. Um, and, you know, so you're going to need to obviously have uh, a, a sort of holistic approach to the patient to make sure that there's no other uh, sort of secondary injuries or other injuries that may impair the sort of providing the best environment for neuronal recovery. When you come to sort of, I suppose, um, the sort of brain specific aspects, often within the first 48 hours, uh, you are going to have made some decisions about whether monitoring and invasive neuromonitoring is required uh, and, uh, and what that would typically involve, whether that's just going to be ICP monitoring or not. Now, for patients with severe TBI, the vast majority of them would tend to get a, uh, at least an ICP monitor. Uh, and then you're going to have uh, subsequent sort of, uh, I guess, progress imaging of the brain to look at the position of those monitors uh, to determine whether there's been any evolution of the, inju of the injury um, and whether there's going to be you know, any requirement for any delayed neurosurgical intervention. Um, so I think if we just summarize that, there, there's obviously going to be the sort of general uh, resuscitative measures, making sure that there's no further blood loss, making sure you've controlled bleeding, making sure you've attended to all of the extracranial injury, that you're optimizing, you know, ventilation, perfusion, and that you're also looking at ancillary, starting some ancillary sort of uh, care. So for example, nutrition, um, uh, ulcer prophylaxis, et cetera, you know, looking at already starting to think about pressure areas, um, looking about sort of, for example, this is cervical spine, is that immobilized? Do I need to have that immobilized. And then there's the brain-specific interventions, which are typically going to involve decisions around uh, monitoring. Uh, and then if the patient has, a, you know, has an ICP monitoring, what sort of targets you're going to be using, um, then uh, progress imaging and, and often close consultation with the neurosurgical team about whether any procedures need to take place. Andrew, there's been a lot of research into therapies for refractory intracranial hypertension in the past decade in particular decompressive craniectomy and therapeutic hypothermia with large randomized controlled trials led by ANZICS. Where do you stand on these two controversial therapies for refractory ICP control? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that those are, you know, very good, very good questions. And certainly we're still, um, I think, struggling to know uh, the, the sort of the most optimal uh, methods of managing patients with severe TBI. Uh, and certainly, I think just as a bit of a segue, we have for, uh, as you've suggested, for many decades now, been principally focused on control of ICP. 
remembering that, of course, it's a surrogate sort of physiological marker of brain health. Um, and, uh, you know, when you look at the relationship between ICP control and functional outcome, it's, it's not necessarily as robust as the relationship between ICP or burden of, of intracranial hypertension and mortality. Certainly patients with, a, with very high ICPs, you know, have a much higher risk of dying. Um, but we do know that interventions that have been directed at controlling ICP uh, may not necessarily translate into uh, improvements in patient-centered outcomes. So how patients function, feel, uh, and how, how they sort of reintegrate into society. Um, and, and certainly that's often been the tension, I think, with research where there is, a, there is a strong biological rationale that these interventions should lower ICP, and indeed they do, but then they don't necessarily translate into improved uh, functional status for the patient. So in the case of DECRA, which was a large randomized controlled trial undertaken primarily here in Australia and New Zealand, but other, also in other sites, um, you know, that study suggested that in patients with diffuse brain swelling, the, the use of early decompressive, crani decompressive craniectomy, a wide bifrontal decompressive craniectomy to control ICP was actually associated with inferior functional outcomes, although there was a significant improvement in ICP and possibly related to stretch um, and uh, of axones and, and sort of mushrooming of the brain out through the sort of the, the bony defect. Um, and so I think it's certainly in Australia and New Zealand that has led many clinicians uh, to be very wary of that uh, intervention. So in that scenario, so certainly decompressive craniectomy is not something that I would um, utilize early. I would be very reticent about using it in, in patients that have diffuse swelling as the primary problem. Um, I would want to exhaust uh, medical therapies beforehand. And then I think it would need to be a, a very nuanced discussion uh, with family uh, and with uh, all of the clinicians that are involved that a, a wide bifrontal decompression is certainly likely to pay, save the patient's life, but may leave them in a, in a grossly you know, disabled or, or dependent state. Uh, and so in my own personal practice, uh, decompression uh, is, is we, we would use very rarely. Um, obviously in scenarios where there's an undrained mass lesion or where the swelling is more focal, um, then uh, that can become, you know, I think that sort of changes the dynamic a little bit and might make it a, a slightly more approachable uh, intervention uh, that can be undertaken perhaps earlier. Uh, in terms of hypothermia, again, uh, again, studies have suggested that it, it does indeed improve um, uh, ICP control. It definitely reduces intracranial hypertension uh, through an effect likely on cerebral metabolic uh, oxygen demand. Um, but the Eurotherm 3235 study, which was a large multi-center study undertaken in the United Kingdom, uh, suggested that again, despite, despite sort of favorable ICP control when it was used as a second tier intervention, was actually associated with inferior outcomes, patient-centered outcomes uh, in the, the longer term. Um, and again, as a consequence of that study, I think many people have moved away from using uh, therapeutic hypothermia uh, as a sort of middle tier intervention. Its role as a its role in um, uh, I suppose as a rescue therapy uh, still remains perhaps to be determined. Uh, certainly, I don't I no longer use um, uh, moderate therapeutic hypothermia uh, in patients with refractory intracranial hypertension. Would certainly avoid fever and might might sort of cool the patient down to perhaps thirty six degrees, but would would rarely go below that. Um, 
And, uh, you know, they're just, you know, that segue also just reminds me, of course, there was the rescue ICP study, which was more recently published in DECRA, which obviously used decompressive craniectomy as a, as a later tier intervention for refractory intracranial, uh, intracranial hypertension. Uh, and this demonstrated indeed improved mortality, there's no doubt about it, uh, but there was uh, an increase in disability. And it sort of depends a little bit upon where you draw the, you know, where you put your yardstick in terms of whether that degree of, of disability is acceptable or not. Um, and that's obviously where the individual sort of patient choice and, and decision making comes into it. So it was a bit of a long-winded answer, but, but I think to summarize, uh, we, we would, in my personal practice is, is certainly not to use decom you know, wide bifrontal decompressive craniectomy as an early intervention. Uh, it would only be something that I would think about after exhausting medical management. Uh, I would need to sort of feel, I feel strongly that we should be talking to families uh, and uh, substitute decision makers and then trying to involve them in the discussions to get an understanding around the acceptable sort of health healthcare outcome for that patient. Um, uh, and, uh, but it is something that we would, we would not routinely do. Um, and in terms of therapeutic hypothermia, similarly, it's not, not a, an intervention that I'll be routinely using at the moment, um, certainly as a middle tier intervention, as a rescue therapy. Uh, again, I would tend to favor other options before using therapeutic hypothermia. Just finally, Andrew, um, I know you're the principal investigator of the Bonanza trial, looking at brain oxygen neuromonitoring. Can you explain briefly what the objective of this multicenter randomized control trial is and when we can expect to see it completed and see its results? Yeah, thanks very much. So, I mean, there has been obviously um, over a number of years now, a, um, I suppose, an awareness that... Um, we, you know, there are different ways of basically monitoring brain health uh, within the severe TBI population. Uh, and as I've already mentioned, uh, you know, in Australia and New Zealand, we're very much sort of wedded to the sort of the idea of optimizing perfusion pressures, lowering ICP, optimizing uh, CPP, um, and as a way of trying to ensure that there's adequate sort of perfusion to the brain and delivery of oxygen and, uh, and other sort of nutrients. Uh, to try and allow the brain to recover, to provide the best sort of environment for neuronal recovery. Um, but there are other ways of monitoring brain health. And certainly over a number of decades, there has been an increasing uh, utilization of devices that allow you to, to monitor and measure uh, oxygenation of the brain, as again, as a surrogate of really of perfusion. Uh, and there've been, you know, a variety of different methodologies, whether it's um, jugular, you know, jugular venous oximetry, um, uh, but also there's, there's now been an increased utilization globally uh, of devices that actually allow you to measure the brain oxygen tension. Uh, so this is just using a, a device that's very similar to a standard sort of arterial blood gas analyzer in terms of the technology. It's embedded within the tip of a very small catheter that, that's inserted into the brain. Uh, next to the ICP uh, catheter, and then it measures a within a very very focal, very very small area, but you know, very focally measures the brain tissue oxygen tension. And if you look at a lot of observational data, historical data, you can see that episodes of cerebral hypoxia, if you like, or a low PBTO2, are associated with adverse outcomes. They're associated with worse functional outcomes. Uh, we know that uh, that. Uh, you know, when you, those, those episodes of cerebral hypoxia don't necessarily correlate uh, with um, episodes of high ICP. 
we know that it's possible to, uh, to manipulate brain tissue oxygen tension with relatively simple interventions, particularly uh, on the ventilator or increasing perfusion pressures, um, optimizing CO2, optimizing O2, et cetera, maybe transfusing uh, red blood cells to augment hemoglobin. So there are things that we can do to manipulate and improve PBDO2. We know that low PBDO2 is bad for you. And certainly when you look at observational data that, you know, that includes historical controls or, or unmatched controls, there is a, an association between improved functional outcomes uh, and strategies that involve a combination of ICP and PBTO2 monitoring. And then of course, the, the, the largest randomized controlled trial to date, the BOOST2 study, which was powered to look at separation in terms of brain oxygen tension with two different uh, management strategies also suggested a, a, you know, a, a signal towards improved uh, functional outcomes in patients with severe TBI who, had, who, who, were, who were randomized uh, to a, a strategy of PBTO2 monitoring and optimization uh, in combination with ICP management as opposed to just ICP management alone. So that's really, I think, spurred, spurred on um, sort of our group to say, well, you know, is, there, is there an alternative way to manage uh, TBI uh, could we, could we introduce PBTO2 monitoring in addition to ICP monitoring as a way of trying to improve functional outcomes for our patients? We wanna do that in a systematic uh, and sort of controlled way so that, um, so that we have robust evidence to guide practice. And so we've embarked upon this multi-center randomized control trial of brain tissue oxygen monitoring and ICP management uh, compared to ICP management alone in patients with um, severe TBI. So, it's a study that's enrolling patients throughout Australia, New Zealand, and in international sites. Um, it's only going to be a very large study. We're, we're, we're aiming to enroll over 800 severe TBI patients, so it will take some time. Um, there's a huge amount of education and implementation that we have to do with this technology because it isn't routine, sort of um, routinely provided in, in many Australasian hospitals. So, you know, this is a new bit of technology that we have to spend quite a bit of time with, with clinicians, getting them used to it. And, and so, so they, they can feel that they can, uh, they can apply the study protocol safely um, and efficiently. Um, and, uh, and, and our primary outcome is very much gonna be a patient-centered outcome. We're looking at the Glasgow outcome scale extended at six months uh, to, 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 to determine whether this technology and optimization of PBTO2 is associated uh, with um, improved functional outcomes. And I guess, you know, the, the, the so, so it is a complex intervention. It's, 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 it involves an additional probe. It involves additional monitoring. It involves integrating the, that PBTO2 measurement within your hierarchy of interventions for ICP, ICP management. And so you, you then sort of have scenarios where, well, the oxygen PBTO2 is, is okay, but ICP is high. So isolated intracranial hypertension, you might have a scenario where PBTO2 is low. Uh, so you've got cerebral hypoxia, but the ICP is normal. And then you have the combination of both of those scenarios, which is sort of going to be the most adverse, where you have a high ICP and a low PBTO2. And so you've got a number of sort of differing interventions, depending upon what scenario the patient is in. And, and, and as I said, they just typically tend to involve um, optimization of ventilation, oxygenation, perfusion, and where the ICP is high is obviously escalating ICP control. Um, uh, and, and, you know, and, and so I think that they're all within the range of you know, intensive care practice. They're all things that we do now currently that we, you know, we're just gonna be doing in a slightly 
uh, more structured fashion and in response to a new variable. Um, so we have for yeah we're we're in the we're in the sort of implementation and initiation phase of the study. We're starting up sites uh, throughout Australia and New Zealand, uh, and hopefully some uh, additional uh, international sites. And uh, and hopefully this will this will be a, a paradigm shift I think in the way that we manage TBI, um, and we can provide some really ro robust evidence that clinicians can rely on to to sort of guide their decision making when they come to to managing patients. Andrew, I think the critical care community will very keenly await the results of this study and good luck with uh, recruitment. Professor Andrew Udy, thank you so much for your time today joining us on our podcast. Thanks very much, Rul. It's a pleasure to join you.